Is JJ wearing an Avengers t-shirt in the video announcements? I don't know. I don't know. There you go. That being said, the rest of you who haven't seen that movie yet, you have a moral obligation. Because you're holding up a conversation that the rest of us need to have as a society, and we can't have it. Because we don't want to be the spoiler. So you got seven days. Right? And then it's free game for sermon illustrations starting next Saturday night. I don't know. And you can't go to see the movie next Saturday night instead of coming to church. So do it before 5 p.m. I don't want to see any 5 p.m. selfies at Hampton AMC. Hey, a couple of things I just want to do. Just give a shout out to Pastor Chris Kurtz back there. Raise your hand, Chris. Come on. This transition of this property coming to us would not have happened without him. Uh, he's been uh, the senior pastor of North Riverside Baptist Church for uh, these, these past two years. And uh, uh, he thought God was bringing him here for one reason, uh, to lead uh, the church forward. And, uh, but God used him in a mighty way. Uh, to help them make uh, the transition that is so historic. And so uh, he's heading out soon uh, for his next pastorate. So we just pray blessings over you, brother, uh, in the work that God has called you to do there. And we're glad that we had a chance for you uh, to stop over here, uh, not just for what God did through your life, but the relationship that he established as well. And so thank you uh, for who you are and what you did. So, hey, one more quick little shout out to Sean Slaughter, little birthday. Little Starbucks gift card. Celebrating his birthday at church on Saturday. Come on. If your birthday falls on a Saturday and you're going to get a giveaway, then you need to be my Facebook friend because that's how I keep track of it. So just saying, just saying. Hey, let me uh, just uh, comment to this series, Break the Yoke. We're going to be in this through the month of May. So we've got Mother's Day coming up. Uh, and then we'll do two more weekends in this series. I've still not uh, decided where we're headed to yet, uh, but we know that God's got a, a summer series planned for us. And, uh, and as he speaks it to me, we'll be sharing it with you. Uh, but we'll do two more weeks in this series on uh, stewardship and finances. We try to do a series at least once a year. Talk about stewardship and finances because material things are such a central part of the human experience. And so we want to have a biblical perspective uh, for how we're supposed to manage our material wealth and then the portion that the Bible speaks that we're supposed to give away uh, for the work of his kingdom. So we're going to be digging around in that again tonight. But before we do, uh, I do want to show this slide again uh, for our uh, new missions giving for this year. We're so excited. We were able to... We were able to clean out our entire waiting list as a church for missionaries and missions organizations. Some of them are local, some of them are not. And, uh, and so we're just believing God that, uh, that before the, this year is out, that we're going to be able to add to it again. That, uh, that there is a, a momentum of missions giving that's been happening in the church that we're just excited about. And, uh, and so we thank you for giving. Thank you for following through on the commitments that you made back in February. Uh, if you're new to the church and you want to learn more about how you can give to missions, you can get in touch with us here at the office. We'd love to talk with you about that. 100% of money that's earmarked for mission goes right back out the door. None of it is kept here. 100% uh, goes out. And, uh, and so we're just so excited for all these organizations uh, that we're going to be supporting on a monthly basis uh, this year. So, Father, we just lift up all these organizations, the directors, the decision makers, God, the missionaries that they represent that are overseas, God, seeking to save the lost and to build your church. Jesus, the two reasons why you said that you came. So we pray 
for all the provision that they need, for every dream that they have that you've put into their heart. We say yes and amen to all of it. Father, we ask for your protection to be on them. God, we pray that you would prosper their vision in an Ephesians 3.20 way exceedingly abundantly above all that they could ever ask or imagine. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, amen, amen. Break the yoke. This verse that we've been looking at, if you're visiting with us tonight or new to the church, you can get all of these messages through our website on our podcast. We also upload our notes, a PDF document. We cover a lot of textual ground as a church. So if you're a note taker, uh, all these verses that we talk about are going to be there in the outline that we post online. But this verse in Isaiah 10, 27 out of the King James Version is, is kind of created. I want to read it every week because it's, it's familiar familiar to us because of the phrase, the anointing breaks the yoke. And if you've been around church for any amount of time, you've probably heard that phrase. And that phrase comes from this verse out of the King James, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. But that's not really a good translation for what it says. The New American Standard gets it right. It says, and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. Now, what's that mean? It means that there are times in our lives where, yes, there is an anointing that breaks bondages in our lives. There's supernatural intervention. God moves in divinely powerful ways. And there's lots of other verses in the Bible that speak to that, but this is not one of them. This is speaking to the expectation that God has of you and me that we have to give our lives to the work of spiritual disciplines to build in us the character of Christ. And as we grow spiritually, as we grow spiritually, there is a spiritual fatness that we begin to experience that begins to shed and break off bondages that we have struggled with sometimes for decades. I've been reading this statement every week, and I want to read it again. How much time have we spent in our lives regarding certain struggles, pleading with God to deliver us when his response to us all along has been grow out of it? And so if you are new, this is free. Find someone in a blue shirt. Ask them to give you a Praxis booklet. We'd love to put one in your hands. This is our, uh, our model for discipleship, how you grow. Once you make a vow of devotion to Christ, what comes next? This little booklet answers that question. The center of it, or the the engine of this model of what we call the 12 pathways. And in this series, we've been focusing on two of the 12, generosity and stewardship. Generosity, we define as having a heart to give freely and offer help to others. Stewardship is being a good manager of all that God has entrusted to us. If you are practicing biblical stewardship, you will always have what you need to be generous. If you're practicing biblical stewardship, you're going to have what you need to step into moments of generosity. We're calling these in this series, these 12 pathways, the spiritual fatty foods of our spiritual diet. Now, I know last week I started in, 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 in on four questions, what I call four heart questions that you and I need to answer when it comes to stewardship and generosity. And last week we talked about am I submitted and am I cheerful? And my intention tonight was to talk about am I expectant and am I content? Because you have to be both of those things. And they hold each other in a healthy tension. I don't know if we're going to get to them uh, this, uh, tonight, this week, and then especially this morning, which I'm going to get to in just a minute. Gretchen sent an email with a 
word that God had spoken to her, and it's, it's just been stirring my heart. Um, we're going to stay in the context of this message, but we're going to look at a different text in Matthew 6. And again, if we don't get to the other two questions, they'll be in the notes, and you can download those and look at it for yourself. But I, I want to start by looking at Psalm 1. I want to start by looking at Psalm 1. This is, a, this is a powerful verse in the Bible, verses 1 through 4. Now I'm going to read out of the King James. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now, this isn't just being poetic. This is giving to us spiritual principles of how one thing leads to another. Because if you walk in the counsel of the ungodly, it doesn't take very long before you find yourself standing in the way of the sinner. And the longer you stand in the way of the sinner, it doesn't take very long before you find yourself in the seat of the scornful. Now, walking in the counsel of the ungodly means that you are allowing worldly mindsets, secular viewpoints, things that are contrary to the Word of God to, to begin to become the dominant influencers of your life. And, and, as, and, as, and as those things become the dominant influence of your life, you begin to stand in the way of the sinner. That, that you begin to practice and live out the influence that has come upon you. And if you begin to practice and do things, right? Sin is not doing the things that I should and doing the things that I shouldn't. The longer you do that, you know what begins to happen? You find yourself in the seat of the scornful. And you know what the seat of the scornful is? The seat of the scornful is the one who looks at the things of God, one that looks at this book and calls it foolish, foolishness when it's actually the ultimate wisdom. Paul talks about that in his letter to 1 Corinthians. The seat, the, the seat of the scornful means that you've been walking in the way of the sinner for so long because you availed yourself to the counsel of the ungodly that that which is wisdom becomes foolishness to you. And it's the ultimate place of deception that you can find yourself in. But the psalmist says, hey, there's an answer. And what you find in verses 2 through 4 is the absolute antithesis of verse 1. See, because the answer to the counsel of the ungodly is to delight yourself in the laws of the Lord, right? Because the Bible says here in Psalm 1 that we would delight ourselves in the law of the Lord, right? And we meditate on it day and night, that we will be like a tree that's planted by rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper, I love that in beginning of verse 2, it says that you delight in the law of the Lord. It means that you're not doing it begrudgingly. It means that you're not saying, okay, if I have to. It means that there is something inside of you that longs for the counsel of God to be continually spoken over your life. It means that even in moments where it seems like the counsel of the ungodly seems like a more pleasurable path, that you reject it because you delight in the law of the Lord and you're bought into the belief in the idea that whenever he says no and whenever he says yes, he's actually trying to protect you from mediocrity. Don't buy into the lie of the enemy. God's way for you is always more and it's always better. And when you delight yourself in the law of the Lord, right, which is the opposite of living under the counsel of the ungodly, instead of standing in the way of the sinner, it says that you will begin to meditate on the ways of God day and night. You see, this idea of meditating 
on the, the law of God and the ways of God day and night, it means that it begins to define who you are and how you live. Just like the counsel of the ungodly is going to direct how you live, so should the law of the Lord. It should also define how you're going to live. It means that when you come to church on a place like this on a Saturday night and you hear God's word spoken, is that when you realize that your life is here and God's word is here, that you begin to work to bring your life into alignment. This idea of meditating on the law of God day and night, it means that the ways of God define you more than anything else. It means that when you look into your life, it means when other people look into your life, do they see the ways of God or do they see you standing in the way of the sinner? Now listen to what it says as it contrasts with this idea of sitting in the seat of the scornful. How does the psalmist Inspired by the Holy Spirit, give us the opposite look there. you got to love this. You will be like a tree that is planted by rivers of water and that you will bring forth your fruit in season. Because the person who sits in the seat of the scornful, there is nothing about their life that ministers to the life of others. But when you delight yourself in the law of the Lord, and when you meditate on it day and night, you will be like a tree that is planted by rivers of water, and you will bear fruit in season, which means that from your life, others can come and be nourished and ministered to because of who you are and how you live, which is the opposite of being in the seat of the scornful. Now, the psalmist could have stopped there, because that should be enough to motivate us. To be the tree that's planted by rivers of water so that our lives can serve and minister and care for others. But he doesn't stop there. The psalmist says, and not only that, but it means that your leaf will not wither. Meaning, meaning that the goodness of God is, there's no season to it. There is no season to the goodness of God. There's no season to his wisdom. It doesn't mean that you don't experience seasons of hardship. That's still true. But in the midst of your hardship, the wisdom of God will always win. And the goodness of God is always present. And listen to what else. The psalmist could have stopped there. This is who God is. He's modeling for us the generosity that he expects to find in us. And just to push it over the top, he says, whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Come on. Whatever you do shall prosper. That the favor of God will be with you. So I'm just asking you tonight, which, one, which verses are you? Which verses are you? Because our church is dedicated and devoted and committed to helping you become a person that delights in the law of the Lord. Delights in the law of the Lord. So that you meditate on it day and night. So it is the way that you walk in. So that you become the tree that's planted by rivers of water. And can I just tell you, when you begin to make decisions to align your life with verses 2 through 4 instead of verse 1, that there is going to be obstacles that the enemy begins to place on your path to try to obstruct your transition from one to the other. Gretchen sent me this email this morning. She said, I was sanding some chairs this afternoon, and 
I felt like the Lord gave me a word. She said, so we have these unfinished dining room chairs that have been in our garage for a few years, and finally I decided to make the time to sand and stain them. Silly me, thought it would be just a few days of work, and now I'm in the second week, and I'm not even done with the sanding. We've all been there. Right? It's called the home project multiplier. Right? But as I was sanding today, I came across a new scratch that was really annoying. And if you know anything about sanding, there are grits that you have to go through, starting with the roughest and then going to the smoothest. I kept wanting to go on to the smoother paper, but the scratch would not go away until I went back to the harsher grit. Otherwise, I was just polishing the scratch. Come on, that's good. Come on. I wonder how many times the Lord is wanting to work on something in my life that I want to hurry up and get through, to get past, that He really wants to completely get to and heal and make new and smooth. And I just want to polish the scratch. So good, isn't it? Because the only thing I'm trying to do is just to make it look pretty. There is much patience and sometimes even pain or discomfort in the process. But the master carpenter wants to completely finish the work he started in us. He knows our every scratch and unfinished places and he loves us still. But we need to surrender to him in the process and let him do his refining, then finishing, then polishing to make us into a beautiful work of art. Come on, where's Gretchen's out there? Raise your hand. Come on, Gretchen. Thank you for sending that in. So good. It's such a powerful word to us because she's describing the process of Psalm 1. Moving from a person who walks in the counsel of the ungodly to a person who delights in the law of the Lord or in the ways of God, it is not an easy transition. It means that God's got to begin to do some resurfacing on our heart. There's wounds that he has to heal. The longer you live yourself in the, in, in, in the, in the way of the sinner, you, you have some self-inflicted wounds that need healing, and it takes time for those things to begin to work themselves out. This is why sometimes people get discouraged when they make the big leap. Maybe even people that are going to be water baptized. Come on, on May 15th, what an exciting night that's going to be. That people make the big leap. The first time they make a vow of devotion to Christ and, and, and they, they cross over. They say, I'm not going to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. I, I, want, to, I want to delight in the, the, the law of the Lord. And, and then all of a sudden they realize this lifetime that they spent walking in the way of the sinner has left them marred. And there is a journey of healing that takes time. Even if you've become that person that sits in the seat of the scornful and you've lived a lot of your life actually mocking and, 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 and making light of the truth of God's word and now you're saying, I don't want to be that person anymore. I want, to, I, want, I want to be the tree that's planted by rivers of water. Even though when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you become the tree that's planted by rivers of water, the memory of the seed of the scornful is still a part of who you are. And it takes time for that to heal. So I'm sharing that with you tonight to encourage you to 
become the person that lives in verses 2 through 4, but be patient with the process of transformation and how uncomfortable it can be. Some of the people in your life that frustrate you, mm -hmm, that's the heavy grit sandpaper right there, people. Yeah. Some of the people that, that frustrate you, that irritate you, that's just God saying, we're going to have to increase the grit on this one right here. We're going to have to increase the grit on this one right here. Circumstances and situations, hardship. Even though there is no season to the goodness of God, there are seasons of difficulty that you're going to go into. You know what that's called? Yeah, sandpaper. He's beginning to make whole. Inside of you, deep down inside, so that the work of polishing can come. So the, the life of Christ can shine forth from you. It is not an easy road. And if you've been on that road, like some of us have been on that road for a long time, can I just tell you there's always sanding that needs to be done? There's always sanding that needs to be done. But it begins with a simple decision. You're either going to live your life in submission to the truth of this book, or you're not. Or you're not. And at some point, you have to decide whether or not this is just a book that you believe is true, or is it going to become a book that begins to define who you are. You have to walk in the way of it. You have to walk in the way of it. Now, those are hard words for us oftentimes because of the topic that we're working through in this sermon series when it comes to stewardship and generosity because my experience as pastoring in almost 20 years is that these are two of the pathways that seem to always be in the, at the end of the pack because it's where it really starts to get personal when it comes to the material resources that God has entrusted to you. And so instead of working through those other two questions, I, I feel like God wants us to dig around in Matthew chapter 6 tonight. Matthew 6. I want to start reading in, in 19. And what you're going to find is that Jesus begins to teach these principles about stewardship and generosity here in the midst of the sermon <clears throat> the sermon on the mount you're going to find that he speaks to money and how we spend it as both a cause and an indicator it's a cause in the sense that the way we spend does something to who we are and it's also an indicator in the sense that it reveals something about who we are. It's the classic difference between the thermostat and the thermometer. The thermostat causes a change of temperature in the room. The thermometer indicates what that temperature is. And Jesus here in these verses, 19 to 34, is saying spending, how you spend your money, has a causal effect in your life, and it's also an indicator of who you are and who you're becoming. 19 to 21 says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. 
Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Here it comes. Wherever your treasure is there, the desires of your heart will also be. Jesus is talking about spending and how we spend our money. It's interesting. The Bible never explains what these treasures in heaven are. It says that they're there. We don't know what that means, right? We don't understand how one person's going to be able to use those treasures differently from the other. Is there a meal plan in heaven, right? Some of you are going to be eating steak and lobster. I'm going to be eating, right, saltine crackers and cheese whiz because my treasures aren't quite enough. Is there a gift shop in heaven? We're earning points. We don't know. How much are those angel wings? How much are they? What's my balance and my treasures in heaven? We don't know. And I think the reason why it doesn't talk about these treasures, even though I think that they're real, is because the emphasis is not supposed to be on the treasure. It's what we talked about last week a little bit. It's supposed to be about the place where those treasures are kept. And what Jesus is saying here, which we know from verse 21, says where your treasure is there, the desire of your heart will be also, is that the way that you spend your money actually begins to build in you a vision for the place that you're headed towards. Jesus is saying you should have a vision of heaven. You should be excited about where you're headed after you breathe your last. The treasures in heaven are supposed to remind you that there is an eternal place where we can be forever. Investing in your vision for eternity. Spending is causal. And how you spend your money. Are you investing in a vision for here? Are you investing in a vision for where you're headed? Verse 22 to 23, it builds as Jesus continues. It says, your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. It seems like he's changing what he's talking about, but he's not. Follow me here. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, come on, how deep that darkness is. These verses help us to understand the verses that come before them. He's not trying to get us to focus on the treasure. He's trying to get us to focus on the vision that we're supposed to have for heaven. And when we spend our money in a way that builds and invests in the vision of of what's to come, right? That's why these verses shift and start talking about the eye and the lamp and the light. Because when you live your life in such a way that you're constantly thinking about where you're headed and the heaven that waits for you because the vow of devotion that you made for Christ and you're spending your money in such a way that's investing in that vision and keeping you focused on the heaven that's to come, Jesus is saying something supernatural begins to happen inside of you. What you look at and the light that you see begins to infuse you with life in the character of Christ. See, he's using this idea of light and darkness to juxtapose and compare the character of Christ with the nature of man. Is that when you have a view of the heaven that's waiting for you, the virtues of Christ, if you don't know what those are, come on, we have a book that we like to give to you tonight. 24 virtues that paint for us the portrait of the character of Christ is that being formed in you. John 1 talks about Jesus, that there was life in him, and that life was the light of the world. 
In Matthew 5, it talks about how you and I are supposed to be a city that is set on a hill, that we're supposed to be a light, a candle that's not supposed to be hidden under a basket. Why does it keep referring to this idea of light? Because it's trying to challenge us and to remind us that the character of Christ as it forms in us, come on, this is part of what it means to be the tree that's planted by the rivers of water, the fruit that you bear in season as the virtues of Christ are formed in you, they begin to minister to the people who are around you. And Jesus is saying how you spend your money is a contributing factor to the character of Christ forming in us because it keeps us focused on the heaven that's to come. It's causal. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot be both a Redskins fan and a Cowboys fan at the same time. You can't. There's natural laws of the universe. There are teams that you cannot both root for simultaneously. Don't tell me your two favorite basketball players are Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant. There's a conflict there. See, this would be a great place to have an illustration about the Avengers, but I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. Some of you, you're sports fans. You've got a favorite team. And there are indicators of your allegiance. The jersey, the hat, the selfies that you take at the game or in the stadium or at the court. If you're a sports fan, it doesn't take long for people to figure out who you root for because there are indicators No one can serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What does your money and the way you spend it indicate about the allegiances that you have? Because not only is how we spend causal, it's also an indicator. Right? I, I love this teaching that Jesus gives. He, he's, he's talking about causation and then he just he just pauses for a moment, and he says, and if you're, if you're not sure about whether or not you're spending the right way, then just pay a little attention to where that money's going, and pretty soon you're going to have a moment of clarity. You'll have a moment of clarity about where your allegiances lie. It is causal, and it's also an indicator. It may it be that our lives are such that our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven. Now let me read 25 to 32. Now this is a stretch, but I want to read them all together because Jesus just goes on a rant here. That is why I tell you to not worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothes? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns or for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to Him than they are? 
Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear? These things, listen to what it says, dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, right? Why? Because they walk, they, they, they walk in the counsel of the ungodly and they stand in the way of the sinner. They dominate the thoughts of the unbelievers. That's an important phrase. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. And then write, write the famous verse, seek the kingdom of heaven above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything that you need. Let's just take all of these verses as a chunk and I want to make these three statements. This is not permission to be neglectful. It's not permission to be neglectful because you and I both know you got to spend some time thinking about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear and where you're going to live. And then when you get married and you have kids, you know that providing for the material needs of your family is a sacred responsibility. These verses, in spite of how people have used them in the past, this is not permission to be neglectful. This is not permission to shame wealth. It is not. This is not permission to shame wealth. People who have wealth are not violating here. These verses. And this is not permission to forsake enjoyment. Jesus didn't give us these verses because he doesn't want you at certain times to splurge on something for the fun of it or to take this vacation or to buy this certain thing or to have that certain thing. That's not what these verses are about. They're not. Let me share these, this thought with you. Because this is what I believe these verses are about. Simply because of verse 32 where it says these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. If you spend your money on temporal things at the expense of eternal things, you are neglecting what actually has the power to change your life and minister to the life of others. Jesus goes on this rant because he's saying to people all of these things that I'm talking about are not wrong unless they dominate your life to the point that they displace all the ways that I intend you to spend your money. He's saying if you let the temporal needs of this life and the material demands of this human experience cause you to neglect and forsake all the ways that you're supposed to be spending your money so that you're investing in your vision in heaven, so that the character of Christ is forming in you, so that your allegiance is clearly aligned with the kingdom of heaven, then it's perfectly okay to spend some time and effort and money and resources on this human experience because God created this human experience the way that he did for our enjoyment while we're waiting for the heaven that's to come. But it must not ever be at the expense. It must not ever displace the way that he intends us to use the material resources that he's given to us. See, verses 33 and 34 
It's a bookend to verse 19. Let me read them together. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. And then 33 says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything that you need. It's why in verse 30, he talks about having so little faith. Because at the end of the day, it takes more than discipline. It takes more than discipline. It takes more than discipline to take some of the resources that you want to spend on human experience and put it towards kingdom things. It takes faith. It takes faith to believe that by not spending that money there and spending it here, that God's going to take care of all your needs. He's going to take care of us. If we're living our lives in such a way where we delight ourselves in the law of the Lord. God's got a plan for our finances, and it's in this book. And when we live it out, can I just tell you, you're going to enjoy this life. You're going to have what you need, and then some. You're going to have extra. And part of the extra, and part of having what you need, means that you're going to have what you need to walk in generosity. To sow and invest in the things that Jesus said were the reasons that he came. To seek and to save the lost and to build his church. And there should be a portion of our money that's constantly being poured into those two things. And when we do, God says something gets poured into us. And that's the character of Christ. You invite the worship team to come back up. Usually when I do this series, I do these four heart questions, and then I also do four money questions that really start to talk about practical ways that we can begin to transition into a life of stewardship and generosity. I'm not going to get to that in this series as well, because I want to spend our last two weeks talking about the biblical concept of tithing, which is so mistaught and misused in churches today. And so we want to teach about it here, because we want people to have a healthy understanding of what we believe the Bible says but if you need some help with practical money questions, then I'm going to point you to Dave Ramsey and his book, Total Money Makeover. We use it for life groups here. It's an incredible resource. So if your life is upside down financially, if, you, if practical steps to how you can begin to be the one that meditates on this book day and night through your finances and your stewardship so that it looks biblical, then you need to check out those resources. And if you need help with it, we're easy to people to get a hold of, and we would love to walk with you to help you make that transition. Investing in the work of Jesus with your finances is not a substitute for financial planning. On the contrary, it's planning and discipline that makes the faith that you have in those finances come to fruition. Stand with me. Father, thank you for being willing to sand on us with the heavy grit. With the heavy grit. And for people that are here tonight and 
that are wrestling with the, the, the weightiness of verses like this that we work through together, I pray that you would remind them that they have what they need. They have what they need. Jesus, they've got your forgiveness for the way that they've misused their finances in the past. And Holy Spirit, they've got your presence and your wisdom to lead them and guide them into their future so that they can begin to put into practice the principles that we find in your word, your truth, your wisdom for what stewardship and generosity is supposed to look like in our lives. Because God, we want to be, we want to be at the end of our days when we've come to our last, we want to be the tree that was planted by rivers of water, bearing fruit in season that our leaves did not wither and that whatsoever we did shall prosper. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together. Thank you.